Coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. PTSD is an injury of avoidance, so you you withdraw naturally. If you take somebody with a mental health issue and they want to tend to withdraw, and then you have mandatory quarantine, you've just made a bad situation far worse. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me, as always, our National Director of Mission Readiness, Ben Goodman. Ben, good morning. How are you? Great, sir. It's great to be with you. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, we're releasing this podcast on Veterans Day, and and we have a special guest that fits really well. His name is Brigadier General Jack Hammond, and General Hammond is the leader of an organization called Home Base, which helps veterans who've returned from conflict. But also, I think you've known him for years. He's a longtime member of Mission Readiness. That's right, sir. He's been a great member of Mission Readiness for a number of years. Uh, Had the opportunity to meet with him at his office a a number of years ago when I was up in Boston and uh, just blown away by the work he's doing at home base. But he's been a consistent champion for early education issues, in particular for Mission Readiness. I've had the opportunity to staff him in meetings with legislative leadership up in on, on Beacon Hill a number of times and um, just bring so much passion and enthusiasm uh, to mission readiness and to his day job. And I'm excited for our listeners to learn about about all that he's working on. No, me too. And I know that in particular since 9-11, we've really struggled with how to help veterans deal veterans and their families deal with post-traumatic stress, to deal with traumatic brain injury, and Home Base is really one of the leading organizations dealing with that. I can't wait to get to this interview. My guest today on the Mission Readiness Podcast is Brigadier General Retired Jack Hammond, who served a very successful 30-year Army career with the Massachusetts National Guard. He's deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan. He's commanded at every level. And now he runs an amazing organization that helps veterans called Home Base. We're going to talk about that. But first, Jack, welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. Oh, thank you. And I appreciate you, you know, having me here today. Mission Readiness is just such an incredible organization. I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. You've actually been a member for several years, which we very much appreciate it. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, but let's talk about your day job as executive director of Home Base. Could you please tell us about Home Base, kind of introduce that organization to our listeners? Sure. Um, those who aren't familiar with Home Base, it's an interesting organization. But those that operate in the veteran uh, health space, um, many are now aware of it because of some of the work we've been doing, but too often we're the best kept secret. So I really enjoy an opportunity like this because every time we get out there and we're able to tell our story somewhere, there's somebody listening, trying to figure out where do I go? They have a son or daughter that's hurting and and needs some care and they just don't know where to turn. Um, So I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share this a bit. So home base started out uh, as a partnership between the Boston Red Sox and the Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, together, they combined their resources and established the nation's first private sector clinic that was focused solely on treating the invisible wounds of war, uh, primarily PTSD uh, and traumatic brain injury. The program was also opened up for outpatient care 
for military family members. And we've operated a three-generation model when it comes to military family members, unlike uh, the traditional DOD model where it's a, it's a husband, wife, son, or daughter. Um, with, with us, if you're a military-connected family member, we know that there, uh, there are a lot fewer Aussie and Harriet families now. Uh, and given two decades of war, you'll see you know, second marriages, yours, mine, ours, children relationship. But you also have young soldiers coming back injured, and you've got parents that are dealing with the second order effects of this. You've got uh, husbands and wives. You've got children, but you've also got sisters and brothers. You know, you could have a, a 10, 12 year old kid brother um, lose, you know, his older brother to combat uh, or to suicide. And so basically the way we look at it is if you tell us your family member, that's good enough. And in over 10 years, we've never had any false flags with somebody had no business being there. And so we have pretty good trust and people don't seek mental health care in general. So the, the likelihood of someone's going to come in under an assumption is it, been far-fetched. Um, over the years, we've now grown the program significantly from seeing roughly 200 folks a year in the greater Boston, eastern Massachusetts area to the nation's first National Center of Excellence for the Invisible Wounds. And we've now seen veterans from all 50 states and territories, and we've flown them in from six countries. Um, we developed an innovative new program, and, and we're blessed with the fact that we draw all our clinical resources from uh, the nation's largest and best Department of Psychiatry, National Hospital, the Harvard Medical School faculty, and the Spalding Rehab Hospital faculty, which is one of the top three rehab hospitals in the nation. Uh, they focus our brain injury care. Uh, and, and through these incredible resources we're able to draw upon, we've built a, a very, some very innovative programs uh, one of which is a 14-day intensive clinical program for PTSD and traumatic brain injury that enables us to fly veterans in uh, from anywhere, and we cover that cost. We put them up in a hotel for the two weeks, and then we deliver um, a very holistic approach to care that takes some of the best practices that we've seen in other programs in the country. We kind of cherry-picked what we liked, added what was missing, and as you can imagine, very intensive program that compresses almost two years of therapy into 14 days. And it sounds remarkable, but if you think about it, traditional therapy, you'll go see a, a clinician once a week for an hour over 15 weeks. So that's 15 hours of care. They'll get 70 hours of treatment while they're with us. Um, they'll get 50 hours of group therapy, which is usually one hour once a week. Um, they'll, they'll be getting that a couple times a day. They'll be getting very specific classes on mind-body medicine, uh, stress reduction, anxiety reduction, so they can deal with the challenges life presents every day to each of us. Um, we found a great art therapy program that they do at Walter Reed, where they take these uh, paper mache masks and, and decorate them on the outside so you see uh, how you present to the world, and then on the inside, how you really feel. And when, when the warrior gets there and spends some time and details this, you know, we share, they share these with their spouse. We fly their spouse in as well around the middle of the week to give them some care and support, work some couples therapy. But when the spouse sees us, they, they'll tell us, well, I've seen that outside every day. That's, I've seen the false front. I never knew all this was going on on the inside. And, and when you see that, what's great about it is you can very quickly get into it because um, PTSD is an injury of avoidance. We, we don't want to talk about it. That's why we bury it down. Um, whatever it is, it was the worst day of our life usually, or a series of bad experiences. And we just tamp them down. We want to move on and get on with the mission kind of thing. Um, what this allows them to do is now all their feelings 
are on a thing. So now they're not talking about them anymore. If you ask them how they were doing, they'd say, great. But if you say, hey, what's that little gold thing here for? And what's that there for? They, they get after that with the intensity of somebody you know that has, you know, a sick Camaro and everything, and they're trying to tell you all the amazing stuff that they did to it. Um, they, they'll, 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 they'll spout it off very quickly because it's no longer them. Uh, and, and it allows us to very quickly get to the root challenges. And then the, the clinicians are very gifted, and then they, they can elicit some responses from them, get them talking about it. Um, and we do this in a squad venue. So we build these cohort groups of 10 to 12 veterans, and every two weeks, two cohort groups of 24 veterans come to Boston, like clockwork. They come in on a Sunday, and they graduate a week and a half later on Friday. And the metamorphosis and transformation that we see is, is nothing short of remarkable. Um, there's a 60% reduction in their symptoms. And, and, and quite frankly, they, they come in um, not functioning fully, and they leave functioning. They come in with a lot of suicidal ideations, and they come suicide-free. It's, it's now a proven suicide prevention program. And the only one I just want to highlight as well, and I know I'm going a little long here, uh, but we, we were able to work with our experts at Spalding Rehab, and, and one doctor in particular uh, by the name of Ross Zafont. Ross is the chairman of the Department of Rehab Medicine for Harvard. He is the chief of rehab medicine for both Mass General and Spalding Rehab. He's also the leader of the NFL concussion clinic here in Boston. And he's been to Afghanistan to help set up the TBI clinics over there back probably eight years ago. Um, but with this breadth of experience and vision Ross has on this space and having treated injured warriors for more than a decade, um, some of the most injured, uh, Ross developed this phenomenal program that we piloted last year within our special operations community. Uh, we had a series of conversations with the folks from SEAL Team 6 um, they had they have an extremely high prevalence rate of concussive events. And they asked, we had a lot of work in the space, and they wondered if we could tailor a program for them, which we did. We hoped to pilot 15 uh, special ops guys last year. We ended up doing 80. Um, and, and through this, our, you know, it, it's like anything else at Mass General, the good get better through repetition and innovation. And so we've been able to build this incredible program where we look at these warriors in a very holistic way. Um, and, and to give you a profile... Um, on average, 15 to 20 deployments. On average, 3,000 plus parachute jumps, uh, breaching operations. You know all the things that you'd expect. We found we now have a we have a standard question: Have you ever died underwater? Follow-up question: How many times? Based upon the actual experience of these warriors. And so when they come in, we, we will do their cognitive testing. We will do all their imaging testing, MRIs, x-rays, anything like that. Um, they'll get their behavioral health therapy and testing from us. Then we'll send them over to the Mass Eye and Ear Institute, which is an international leader in that field, because we know that there are hearing issues and vision issues associated with the brain injuries they've sustained or that will complicate these brain injuries. And we now have these experts at MGH, uh, Mass Eye and Ear, who know what to look for because they go back and see the same experts each time. They'll go over to MGH Sports Medicine, which are the folks that take care of the Bruin Patriots and the Red Sox, and they're used to elite athlete with concussive, like uh, musculoskeletal injuries, which you, you imagine with 3,000 jumps, um, they bang up pretty good. Um, and then they go to the sleep center over at Mass General for another look. So over a four-day period, they will get the most comprehensive evaluation that you could get anywhere. Um, and then a treatment plan that can be executed and delivered anywhere locally, wherever home is, 
because the, the key is having the academic rigor. Um, we've had several occasions where folks have come to us thinking that they have traumatic brain injury and then finding out in two cases they had one had um, a form of cancer uh, and a tumor that had wrapped around his brainstem. Uh, and another one had another cancer. And so it was a separate type of pressure. But, I mean, it was a good news, bad news situation. They didn't have a traumatic brain injury. And they quickly identified a cancerous tumor that we were able to then send them to another part. Uh, and in this one case with the brainstem uh, tumor, there were only five surgeons in the country that could operate at on this particular injury. And two of them were at Mass General. Um, this guy's life was saved because if he hadn't come to us, we never would have picked up on it. And, and it would have it would have been catastrophic for him within 90 days. Um, so it's, it's, it's having these deep resources is a huge benefit. It sounds us. like an absolutely extraordinarily comprehensive uh, and frankly complex system you all have uh, have established there, but doing some amazing good for veterans. So General Hammond, a lot of folks call the current conflict the long war. We've, we've been in conflict since 9-11 of 2001. Is there anything unique you're seeing at home base with the veterans that you're serving? Well, an interesting fact that we're now seeing is the fact that this has become a multi-generational war. And, and, and much like other industries, the military is a family business. So we oftentimes will have um, sons and daughters of veterans that fought early on in the war. Um, we've seen it with General Petraeus. We've seen it with General Kelly. A lot of senior leaders whose kids have come back in. General Odierno um, was the um, head of MNC uh, when his son was received a catastrophic injury as a platoon leader and lost his uh, right arm. And, and so we've got paratroopers in Afghanistan today that were born after 9-11 and spent their entire childhood with mom, dad, or mom and dad both deploying throughout their childhood. And now they're going to war and mom and dad are at home and, and, and it's kind of pivoted so that the parents who fought in the war in the early days and probably up, you know, up recently are now sitting on the sidelines as they send their son or daughter back into those same hotspots. Um, and, and that's hard. And so we don't know the impact of the child who's grown up around family deployments their entire life, entire life, literally. And then now they're in a combat zone, and how does that affect them? And then the second part of that is, what happens to somebody with two or three deployments of their own, and now they're sending their son or daughter to war? Um, so those are those are some to-do list things that we look at and try and figure out what's going on. But it's a pretty remarkable situation. Oh, no, that is remarkable. It's my understanding that it was due to a Red Sox visit, the 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 World Series teams in in two thousand and four and two thousand and seven who went and visited Walter Reed and, and got a chance to see the problem. And that's what kind of inspired this amazing home base organization you have today. But since that time, how has our understanding of the problem changed and how have the treatments changed since back then? So that, that's a perfect question. Um, I, I can tell you, my so on the front end, my personal experience overseas, traumatic brain injury wasn't on our screen. We weren't even considering it. If you got blown up and walked away, we high-fived. Um, and I had a number of folks that got significantly injured through, through concussive events, but walked it off. Uh, on the same day, our brothers from a different battalion in Fallujah, particularly, um, we, I remember just like it was yesterday, we lost a tank crew uh, to an IED, which was, it was a howitzer shell that was, you know, um, a couple of them on the road. And they, they, they took out an M1 tank. Uh, my unit was driving around with uh, canvas door Humvees. And so, 
you know, your life expectancy, if an artillery shell takes you out, your case, we, you know, the guy lucked out, I'm using air quotes on lucked out, um, because there wasn't enough shrap. It was mainly C4 um, and the vehicle got blown off the ground. You know, they spiderwebbed the windshield. This one lieutenant got blown up three times in a week. Um, and a tree had a trickle of blood come out of his ear and we never gave it a second thought. We just high five because sister units, they were fatals. Um, and so that's how we treated them. When it came to PTSD back then, we shrugged it off. You know, it wasn't something we looked at. And I, I remember a conversation with my command sergeant major uh, after a particularly bad cu- couple days and some pretty bad fights. And the chaplain came by and he, he wanted to talk to the troops involved. And he said, sorry, major, I'm going to get out and meet with the guys and have a conversation if that's okay. And the sergeant major was a hell of a guy. He had two tours in Vietnam. He'd been in Desert Shield. And this was his third war. Just looked at him. He said, chaplain, that's fine, but don't make any promises you can't keep. He said, what do you mean? And he said, when the sun comes up tomorrow, we're back at it. And that's the way we were. Um, flash forward to my last commando in 2011 and 12, um, we were a lot more uh, conscious and understood traumatic brain injury much better. Um, the rising suicide rate had us very focused and in tune with PTSD. Um, and so if somebody did get blown up, we, there was a protocol in place on what we would do to double check them. And it's still fairly remedial. Uh, when it came to PTSD, if there was a severe issue, we had behavioral health folks that they could go have a talk with. Um, but still not where it needs to be. And, and I think, I think we're, the, the, it's continuing to evolve. Uh, I know Special Operations Command now is taking a hard look at this and trying to figure out you know, with all these types of injuries, how can we mitigate some of them? Um, because frankly, anecdotally half happened training. They're going to try and figure out how to, what can we adjust and as a former cavalry officer, you know, and we, you know, we need troubles in the nineties. We all got the MCOF, uh, tank simulators and everyone said, that'll be the end of gunnery. Well, it's a cost savings thing. Well, re- realistically having that gunnery, we were able to do gunnery training every day. It actually got better. And moving forward, I think we're going to see more improvements in these areas. Uh, I'll be looking forward to see people getting at the front end of this upstream before they get into combat on things like mindfulness, uh, on stress reduction classes, anxiety reduction classes that that prepare you so that when you are exposed to these things, you can self-care and and keep yourself healthy. Just like we, we did in the 80s, you know, everyone used to just strap on and go run the two miles and do the obstacle course without any stretching. And then everybody had pulled hamstrings, everything else in the world. You know, a soldier today would look at you cross-eyed to say, you ran two miles in boots. Well, why did they do that to you? Were you, were you bad? Um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't consider going out for a run without stretching before, during, and after. But by, by, by um, complete contrast, we'll take an 18-year-old kid and not prepare him mentally for combat um, by giving him the tools to get ready. And then when we return home, we'll ask the blanket question, if anybody thinks they need any help, raise your hand. And at that point, you don't go on block leave, you go on med hold, nobody's going to do that. And so what we've talked about is the fact that it should be a presumptive situation that you are affected by combat and need some post-deployment maintenance. You know, for everything I ever did in the Army, whether it was shoot a rifle or drive a Jeep or a Humvee, fly a helicopter, pre, during, and post. And so I think the key moving forward is to approach mental health the same way, do all the preparatory maintenance, do the in-process maintenance to keep everybody good while they're overseas. And then, you know, you don't put a dirty rifle in the rack. When they come home, there's a presumptive that they've been affected and, and everybody's different on how they're affected. But 
take it, you know, make an assumption that everybody needs some post-operation maintenance on their brain uh, to be healthy and, and keep them ready for the next time out, because that's why we do it with rifles and Jeeps and Humvees. No, I, absolutely true. And I, I think building that resistance in advance must have a great effect and at least help people be more resilient. They've got the training, they've got the tools before they deploy. You know, you talked a, uh, about how we our understanding of this problem has grown and you shared a really interesting story about the owners and their personal interest in veterans due to due to family members they had sure and, and you, you mentioned this a moment ago the birth of the program and it, it started with a visit to walter reed um the, the red sox went to the uh, white house for their you know meet and greet with the president back in uh 2008 um and from there, the team physician, who's an amazing guy, set up a visit at Walter Reed so they could show the trophy, sign some autos, autographs. And as you know, 2008 was the height of the surge. So it was the height of the occupancy at Walter Reed and, and with some significantly, tragically injured warriors. Um, the meeting was supposed to last an hour and it lasted five hours. They could not leave. They didn't want to leave. There were some personal attachments that were made that day that lasted to this day. Um, and several of the owners were quite moved by that. And, and after the Walter Reed visit, they left and said, we need to get into the veteran space, find out what we need to do. Um, they met with Senator Ted Kennedy when they got home, who was on both armed services and health and human services. And he told them that the invisible wounds were the biggest problem that was unaddressed, that the amputees, unfortunately, they got really good at. Walter Reed was very good at um, DOD, the VA. Everybody was pretty good with those injuries, but the invisible wounds were, were difficult. He connected him with Mass General, the president of MGH, and they set up this program. Uh, and, and, and over the years, I've become pretty good friends with the owners. And, you know, Tom Warner in particular, who was the catalyst for this program, he's invested millions of dollars of his own personal money towards this program. Um, Tom uh, confided in me that his uh, was part of the Normandy invasion. He was an intel, air, you know, Army Air Corps intelligence officer and you know, he did some stuff behind the lines and all this stuff. And when he came back from the war, he, he had some issues and, and Tom never fully understood him. But after his work with home base realized, you know, that was what was going on. With my dad, uh, Dave Ginsburg, another minority owner, uh, his father um, had been taken prisoner in the Pacific and ended up at that that now infamous uh, POW camp. The Japanese occupied and, and it was highlighted in the movie Unbroken and, and, and you know, and where torture was the, the norm. Um, and it affected him to his day. And he always wondered why, you know, his, his dad to his dying days had a lot of anger about a lot of issues. and He better understood those. Um, the, the Red Sox have a long history of working with the military. Uh, you, everyone's heard the story of Ted Williams and the fact he fought in two wars during the height of his career. Um, they, they had a Red Sox catcher that was a spy out working for the OSS. And, and while he was a Red, a Red Sox player, traveled to Europe and Japan taking pictures of things um, and joined Bill Donovan in the OSS and the CIA. Pretty remarkable stuff, but they, they've always been big fans of, of the military. Through this program, uh, they really um, allow us a, a platform to communicate this injury and raise awareness across New England and then on a more national basis. Well, let's turn into COVID it's, uh, at this time. We've been in this pandemic for about eight months uh, I first want to know from you, what have what have you all seen at home base as far as any changes in the type of care or assistance that veterans need uh, during this this COVID pandemic? So the, the challenges that the COVID presents 
to us, there's a couple layers to it. First and foremost, PTSD is an injury of avoidance, as I mentioned a moment ago. Um, so you, you withdraw naturally. If we're if you take somebody with a mental health issue and they want to tend to withdraw, and then you have mandatory quarantine, you've just made a bad situation far worse. Um, so having these young men and women further isolated is not a great thing. Um, and so what we've seen is an, an, an increase in the in the in the um, more seriousness part of this because without care, and some of these have guys have unresolved uh, depression, they have um, extreme difficulty in in trying to open up and, and share some of this stuff. Um, we've seen an increase in veteran suicide. Uh, the DoD published something about two or three weeks ago where they said there's a twenty percent increase from March to September. So we know this is a scary time and, and tr- developing means by which we can, you know, reach out and connect with our veterans that are connected with our program has been a top priority uh, since March. And then how have you had to change what you all do at the organization itself? How has home base had to adjust to the pandemic? We were fortunate in, in the fact that when we moved to our new National Center of Excellence a couple of years ago, um, we made a decision early on that no one, including me, would have an office. Um, that we were hot bunking everything uh, so that we can maximize the amount of space for patient care delivery. Um, so when, when we were hit with the pandemic uh, back in March, we immediately pivoted because everybody had their own laptop, everybody had their own cell phone. And so uh, within 24 hours, we went from 1% telehealth to 100% telehealth on our outpatient program. And our, our clinicians just pivoted and, and immediately started delivering uh, their, their, their mental health care uh, from their homes. That was pretty good. Uh, the downside, uh, all our in-person programs about earlier, we would fly people in immediately shut down. Um, and, and they did remain closed until July. Uh, so one, one thing we did do is we had our wellness team and a lot of our other clinicians get to work on something we called uh, Operation Health at Home Base. And I knew there was going to be a challenge with folks being detached and isolated. So we took our top tier uh, mental health professionals, and they would do daily videos. We took our our, our, our strength and conditioning coaches, uh, all combat, most of them combat vets, some of them combat vets, and they they started doing five minute videos on home workouts without any fancy gym equipment, stuff you could have just in the house, whether it was Clorox boxes or whatever. But every day they would come out with short videos that they could share. Uh, our nutritionist, because everybody was putting on the COVID twenty, uh, was talking about how you could eat healthier. And then the child psychiatrist would pop in with things like, how do you talk to your kids about these injuries? Uh, and same with the mind-body medicine folks dealing with stress and anxiety. And so I think we've, we've published almost 200 of these short videos um, that are archived now, but that steady feed for a while, I think, helped a lot of folks uh, get through this. And, and they're all shared at no cost, so anybody can access them. And they're good for anybody, frankly. Um, in July, we reopened. A lot of work with... Uh, Mass General uh, Infectious Disease to make sure we could do it safely. But it, within four weeks, we ramped up, and we're now back at full operational capability. Um, the big challenge we had was on the last day of March, I, I got a call from the governor of Massachusetts, and he asked me to build a team and stand up a thousand-bed COVID-positive field hospital in the city. And and so I, one of the things I had to do is I didn't have a team, so I picked I. I 
I reached out to my home base team and I reached back to a command surgeon uh, from uh, my last overseas deployment who was a uh, plastic surgeon and full professor at Harvard. And I asked him to come aboard. Uh, and we had 50 uh, home base team members volunteer. We had to hire a thousand employees over the next six days. And, and we had to have three shifts of construction building a thousand bids. And they did it in five days. Um, and so we were operational within COVID positive patients. And, and so it, I think, you know, from my perspective, we were able to benefit from that experience because when we came back to home base in July, number one, we had a great deal of confidence working in a COVID positive environment uh, as opposed to just a, a traditional, it should be non-COVID environment. And we were able to build the protocols to make sure that as our men and women come see us now, that every safety measure in place, uh, we treat it like it, it is a COVID positive so that no one gets sick when they come to get care. That's an amazing story about the governor calling you to, to, to set up that task force in such a short time. So you've led some amazingly diverse teams, obviously in the military, in, deplo- in deployed combat environments, uh, as well as, as back at home base. You've led home base to, to become this extraordinary organization. What kind of background or experiences do you draw on as a leader to lead such diverse teams? I mean, you're dealing with medical experts, with with academics, I assume, with with government officials. I mean, that's that's a pretty diverse crew to bring together and get them to move forward in the right direction. What do you draw on for your leadership uh, talent? I, I, well, I think part of it, you know, we're, we're all the sum total of our past experiences. And I, I think, you know, I'm not the same guy I was when I was a lieutenant and a captain. Um, I was very my way, the highway kind of thing. And, and you know, you start doing that. And lieutenant, you listen to your NCO zone, you taught that. So there's always somebody that you've got you, you work with and you become a company commander and you're supposed to be the, you know, the man with the plan at that point. Um, but once you get up to the battalion level, as you know, you have a staff now. And you listen, if you don't listen to your staff, there's no point in even having one. So good leaders will start to listen to their staff. They'll give them the issues. They'll come back with some things. But then you may ultimately make the decision. The higher you go up, you, it becomes a more collaborative process. And I, I think um, a lot of folks, especially in the civilian world, don't realize that they think that you're a general. You just you know point and yell and people do stuff. You do a lot of listening. Uh, you know, most smart leaders that I know listen more than they speak. And I, and I make a point to listen to everybody in the room off their input before I say anything, because I don't want to guide the conversation. Uh, I won't talk until I've heard everybody's input. And then I'll, then I'll ask some questions and then we'll kind of start steering it. Um, it's a little easier um, given the, the hospital and the institutions I work with. Uh, all my doctors are Harvard doctors. Uh, I'm the dumbest guy in the room every time I set foot in it. And so I damn well better be listening to them. And, and they're, they're, you know, they're all experts in their field. Um, operationally, though, I have a great deal of operational experience. And so as we go to look at something, I know what we need. Then, I, then we kind of lay the framework. And then that's where their magic comes in. They know how, then they figure out how to do it and how to do it to the best level. Um, so that collaborative piece of uh, senior leadership is what you need. My, my job is to provide purpose, purpose direction and resources. And so once I lay out the framework, they put the meat on it. And then, you know, we do the quality control and then we do the revisit on it. Um, but, but having competing discussions and a lot of tug and pull, I, I, I just want to share one anecdote I got uh, from the chief of um, uh, psychiatry eight years ago when I based, I was a bit frustrated at the, at the, at the, at the slow pace of movement. 
um, because as an old cavalry officer, I want, you know, you make the plan, then you go. And when it wasn't moving at my speed, I, I was getting a bit frustrated. And he said, you know, Jack, at Mass General Hospital, we have 18 department chairs. And if we go to a big program and a new initiative and 17 out of the 18 are on board, you know what we call that? And I said, landslide. And he said, no, we call that a good start. And he said, because that's where we dig in and we really start rooting through it. He goes, but once we make a decision and we all agree, we put every resource the hospital has to bear on this and then stand exceptionally quick. Well, before we leave the topic of home base, how would a veteran or a family member get a hold of home base if they were interested in, in your services? Sure. Uh, it's, it's an easy website. It's homebaseoneword.org. Uh, when you click on the website, there's a button right there that'll say connect to care. Um, and then you can give you a number to call uh, or an email to check in with. And within you know 24 hours, someone will get back to you and connect you. And if you're a family member and you've got a warrior uh, that you're worried about and they're still hesitant, we, we're not a government organization. And as you know, with the VA, the warrior has to call to even start the conversation. We'll collude with the family. Um, that happens quite a bit, especially spouses, um, parents. They'll call us and say, hey, He's not, well, he, she's not saying it's been a year and it's just getting worse and, and they're scared. And so we'll have folks talk with them. And we've got um, 25 veteran outreach coordinators, all combat veterans, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. And we'll try and match a Marine soldier with a soldier. But we also have family outreach coordinators that are parents and spouses of warriors that have deployed. And so they understand that side of it. And they can have that, that shared experience conversation about how do we set this up? Ultimately, you know, the veteran will have to say, I need help. Because if they don't, I mean, if they're going through the motions, it's not going to benefit them. It's not going to benefit us. Uh, and same goes for the families. And, and we found a gap. And I think this is something of interest to your listeners. Um, we operate the only program in the nation that provides a, a dedicated clinical program for the families of our fallen. Um, about Five years ago, a close friend I graduated, I went to high school with, uh, her husband had been a Cobra pilot, and after second deployment, he took his life. She has a portfolio of 10,000 survivor family members that are surviving family members of suicide. Um, and there's a subset of those folks that are the most egregious where it happened at the dinner table in front of the kids. Um, they walked in and found the warrior hanging or shot. And, and so th that trauma is bad as any combat trauma that anybody I know sustained. Um, it's somebody you care most about, and, and it's just a horrific scene. Um, she asked us to develop a program, um, and we pilot it, and we now have it as a program of record. Uh, we'll bring co uh, three cohort groups of uh, survivors each year, um, and we basically took that two-week intensive clinical program for warriors, modified it very slightly. Uh, we bring these folks in, and TAPS comes in with us to work with them, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, and the, they, they get the exact same results as the warriors do. It's remarkable. Um, this year, one of our own, one of our big COVID casualties was we were going to work with their children. Um, we're now finding that some of these children that witnessed this horror, as young as eight years old, are talking about suicide. Um, most eight-year-olds I know don't even know what the word means. And so that they're legitimately scared about that. We're, we're, we're once this is all behind us, we're going to re, re, revisit that and, and develop a program for these children that have incredible trauma. I actually served as a, uh, a mentor for a survivor at a TAPS grief camp when I was on active duty. So I just it, it just 
makes me very happy to hear that home base is working with TAP uh, to serve that group. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about mission readiness. You've been an active member in Massachusetts for years. You've met with legislators on education issues. Uh, what motivated you to join Mission Readiness? Well, I, you know, I, I read about them. Uh, I got a, I got a, an email one time asking me to consider it. I looked into it, and it's just such a no-brainer. Um, and as you looked at it and you realized that 75% of the young men and women that are military age eligible don't meet the minimum requirement in the United States Army or, or an E-1 in the Navy. Um, there are so many doors closed to them if they don't meet that. Because if they can't be a private in the Army or an E-1 in the Navy, how are they going to go work at a biotech company? How are they ever going to have a life beyond burgers and fries? Do, do you know what I mean? And so that's a life, you know, that, that's not good for the country on, on just our national economic side. Um, on the national defense side, if we ever need a full mobilization again, like we did in World War II, these people just aren't available. Um, so that's scary on a national security side. And as they peel the data back, it's it's not we're not splitting any atoms here. They they can draw direct correlations to the fact that you know during those first five years of a kid's life, if they don't get the proper nutrition and and counseling on that, you know they don't get fed properly. If they don't get the proper education, the road to success is narrowed to a choke point. You know you look at most of the folks that are oh, if they're they're getting into that pathway where they can get into just economic uh, abyss potentially law enforcement challenges, then they can start having the health issues um, with high starch, high carbohydrate diets where they, they become uh, you know obese um, and they just don't have the right proper physical activity and nutrition. So every one of those things rang through. And as a, as a uh, grandfather, you know, I'm able to, you know, see, you know, my young grandson and watch what could be, you know, as a, as a father, you're in the fight every day, you know, when your kids are growing up, you work and everything else. When you, when you're a grandfather, you're one step back and you can kind of take a, a little more perspective. And I could just see with my young grandson, if he didn't get all the right stuff, what could happen? You've spent a lot of hours, as I mentioned, with top legislators in Massachusetts. What have you learned from, from speaking with them? I think there's a, there's a lot of interest, but the challenge we face is that there are many competing interests. Uh, for these same dollars within the state budgets. Um, and it, it's a no-brainer for anybody to go in and say, hey, we need to help the kids out with better things. And, and nobody's going to say no to that. The, the challenge we have is, do they make it one of their top priorities? Because they'll tell you, but if nobody ever drives it, it that doesn't happen. And, and so I think that's the work we've been able to do at Mission Readiness. Um, they are taken back by the fact that there are all these admirals and generals that are, are interested in this. Um, because traditionally they would hear from the people from the um, teachers unions or certain grassroots organizations. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's, you know, and it's not that, that it's good or bad. It's just we're different. Do you know what I mean? It's like, OK, why is this general here and why is he so concerned? And so it's hitting him at a complete different perspective. And I, and I do discuss both the economic impact and the national security impact. And I said, you know, the, the folks, the stuff they're going to talk to you about from the teacher side and the family side and the social work side, they're all spot on. But, you know, they're talking about, you know, this is what's good for the child. I'm also going to expand on that because that's a known. I'm going to tell you where it's going to affect you. And in Massachusetts, we have a big biotech industry. Um, we have a big finance industry. And I said, if you want people to be available to work for those things, this is where you are, you're able to address this. And if all roads lead to Rome, 
you know, the key is we want someone to be healthy and fit and get a high school degree. If that's the, if that's the bar, that's not too, that's not an outrageous bar. Um, because if they don't have a high school degree, the reason the army doesn't take non-high school grads anymore is the equipment we operate is if you can't put a radio into operation, we really can't use you. And so if you want to work in the biotech field or anywhere, you've got to be able to have the, the education and business mind of at least a high school graduate. Well, the last question that we always ask all of our guests, what books are you reading right now or what books would you recommend to our listeners? You know, during, during the COVID pandemic, we all have a lot of extra time on our hands. Um, and I just, I'm just in the, in, in the third book of a trilogy with Rick Atkinson. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, I wish I had read them sooner, um, but they've got the uh, Guns of Last Night, The Day of Battle, and The Army of Dawn. And, and it it's really profiles in great detail um, the North African campaign, then the Sicily-Italy campaign, and now I'm on the European campaign. All too often, we look at World War II and the amazing job, you know, the greatest generation did. And it sounds like everything went perfect. Um, that was, you know, they, they, you know, heart and soul were great, but there were a lot of challenges and mistakes made. Actually, yeah, in, in his, into his first book in his Revolutionary War trilogy, the, uh, it's called The British Are Coming, and he's a fantastic author. So thank you. Great suggestion. You know, thank you for what you're doing for Home Base uh, and, and for our veterans. And, and thank you so much for what you do for Mission Readiness. And thanks for being on our podcast today. Well, I appreciate you having me and, and give me an opportunity to share some of these stories. Well, Ben, what an incredible conversation with someone who is doing so many amazing things through his organization, Home Base. I mean, just a great story about the governor calling him for help. I was particularly pleased to hear that family members and friends and other people who are concerned about a veteran can reach out to Home Base and see about getting help for the veteran who may not reach out themselves. Just, I, I, I'm just amazed at how many good things that that organization is doing. And, and I frankly ha was not really aware of, of Home Base until this interview. Really just incredible. It's, it's been um, amazing to watch them grow over the recent years. Um, visited General Hammond in his office on one of my last trips to Boston, and it's such a state-of-the-art facility. I think um, uh, we were there just a week or two after it had opened or in the process of opening. So really excited to see how it continues to grow and can be a model for others. But, but you know, I would also say what I keep thinking about listening to General Hammond's interview is how many of our members at Mission Readiness, they spent a career in uniform. If there's anybody who has deserve the opportunity to sit back in the chair, watch a football game, put their feet up. It's it's our members who have served in mission readiness, but they continue to serve their communities. Um, General Hammond serving veterans and serving the people of, of Massachusetts, members across the country uh, focused on helping the next generation for kids. So um, on Veterans Day, I certainly want to thank you, General Gross, for your service and, and thank our members um, for their service and their continued service. Oh, well said, Ben, and thank you. And I would echo that uh, uh, of, you know, wishing everyone the best, all of our members who have served in uniform and, and just hope that they have a good Veterans Day and uh, continue listening to the podcast. We we ask everybody, if, if you like the podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and join us next week. We've got another great show coming up.